0: Super real.
1: I'm Maggie Kelly, and this is Parent Kind, the show where I investigate the parenting experience from every angle possible. Each episode, I'll hunt down juicy stories from a new topic, tackling all the big stuff sex, body image, mental health, and everything in between. Thanks to our sponsor at Body Catalyst. Now let's get started. So today we're talking about identity and specifically how parenthood has changed your identity. I am totally a different person than I was two years ago before I had a baby Um, and I'm not gearing up for a big speech about how I became a woman. Um, I'm actually going the other way. I had a full-blown identity crisis and turned into a complete lemon. I used to be pretty confident and successful in my eyes anyway. And I really didn't think twice about things like jumping on a plane and moving across the world. But motherhood kind of ruined me a little bit. It it kind of shrunk me down. Um, My identity sort of felt like a cashmere jumper that had gone through a really hot machine wash. I began questioning everything. I didn't know if I was a good writer anymore. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my career or... You know, what my friendships were doing, just everything was called into question. So today I want to bring you two stories about parenthood and how it's completely changed someone's identity. First, I'll introduce you to a mum of two who lives with cerebral palsy in Townsville, Australia. She gets about in a wheelchair and is raising two kids with probably the same level of difficulty as anyone else raising kids in 2022. But we spoke about how pregnancy was her real first experience of her body doing what she wanted it to. And that really changed the way she saw herself. Then we'll hear from a mum and midwife from Darragh country in New South Wales. She always knew she was Aboriginal, but only discovered her family roots as she became a mum. So she spoke to me about how this really altered her experience of birthing on country and her identity as a mother and ultimately her career. So. All of you shrunken jumpers out there struggling with an identity crisis, let's jump in. Story one, part of their world. From tropical
0: far north Queensland, let's meet Corrine. My name is Corrine Gravener. I am 47 years of age and I live in Townsville. I am a social worker.
1: Corrine herself experiences a disability. She was born with cerebral palsy and is in a wheelchair. We actually had quite a long chat about the right way to say that. I wasn't sure if differently abled or disabled was right and really wanted to avoid statements like being bound to a wheelchair. So uh, just prefacing that for today's episode, the language we are using is specific to Corinne's approval only. There's loads of ways to talk about disability. And I guess my advice is if you're ever unsure... Just ask the person you're talking to. Anyway, Corrine is mum to two lovely kids, Samuel, who's 12, and Tori, who's six. And then there's Corrine's husband, Dale.
0: They've been married for 12 years. I wasn't really somebody who saw myself being a mother, but I had said to myself, kind of in my own mind and heart, if I was to meet someone who I knew was very keen to be a father and would be very actively involved in that process, I would think about it. And of course, I met Dale. I actually fell very quickly pregnant with Samuel within the month of us deciding to try. And I kid you not, I was like, okay. And I won't deny I was quite scared. I was quite scared because I thought, what does this mean and will i be okay and what will my body do because i have cerebral palsy as a disability and i didn't know how that would go Corrine was formally diagnosed when she was around a year old i was born two months premature weighing two pounds and three ounces so i was very small mum actually had an accident uh, when she was pregnant with me and fell very hard On her stomach. So I think she kind of thought, oh, this could be tenuous. She couldn't have known that I was going to be born so early, but I was. And then um, I think it was around 18 months to two years of age where mum was realizing, oh, she's not meeting her milestones. And yes, over the course of time, it was diagnosed that I had cerebral palsy. Here's how it affected her physically. It affected my right side, um, everything from my vision to um, spasticity within my arms, hands and feet. Um, I was only just telling Samuel the other night, actually, he was asking me, he said, mum, I know you have a disability, but how does it, what does that mean? Because obviously to my children, I'm just mum, I'm the pain in the butt who asked them to do jobs and they don't listen to me. It doesn't change whether you sit or you stand. And he says, okay, so he sat there and I said, well, Samuel, um, it's been a long road for mummy. Um, there's a lot that I couldn't do when I was born and as I grew. I couldn't do things like turn my head from left to right. I couldn't swallow properly. I couldn't speak Clearly um, I couldn't roll, I couldn't crawl and it is purely from the wisdom and understanding of how the brain works and the assistance of um, occupational therapists and physiotherapists that I was able to reach my milestones.
1: Corrine was growing up in the tiny town of Air in the 70s and 80s Even today, it's populations under 9,000 people. There wasn't any representation, really, of disabled people around her. So by the time she got pregnant, Corrine's first assumption was that, like everything else in her life, she was going to have to work harder than everyone. She was used to struggling. Things had to be planned out, you know?
0: Stepped through from start to finish to ensure that there were no surprises. It's like any project in my life, I had to give myself plenty of time to think about what I needed to do to plan for this. And so, I i mean, it's a while ago now, it's nearly 12 years, but I remember thinking, okay, so probably the best thing to do is start thinking about what am I going to need as I go along. I think I told my doctor pretty quickly um you know, so so that she could be aware and we could be keeping track of how my body managed it all. You know, Samuel was say two months out or three months out from being born. Once I knew that things were progressing and We had a couple of months left. It was then that I made appointments with hospital staff and and said, okay, we need to do a birthing plan and what does does it look like? For Corrine, there were some considerations for her birth plan that were really specific
1: to her disability. They needed to ensure that there was wheelchair access, accessible parking and adequate physical support to help move Corrine around during the birth itself, Then she needed to weigh up a caesarean versus a natural
0: birth. Where's the best place for me to go? Because I thought, you know, the last thing I want is to be in labour with this baby and not know what I'm doing because I can't do things last minute, it just doesn't work. And I also knew that the birthing process, I had to be very clear about, okay, what was the plan? Where would I go? which part of the hospital, what drugs would I use, if any? If I used an epidural, for example, would it be worse for me in the end if something went wrong? If I had a caesarean, would it be worse for me in the end?
1: Kareem not only had to consider the intense small period of active birth but then also the recovery time, which could potentially be longer
0: as someone with a disability. Do I endeavor to give birth naturally where supposedly our bodies as women are geared for that and see how it goes or do I do a cesarean? And in my mind I weighed it up and I really thought that a cesarean in the end could be worse because the pain that women go through as able-bodied is bad enough, let alone having to be someone who is lifted by hoists and things like that. You know, I didn't want to go through that. I didn't want to have pain that went on and on and on and on forever. Effectively, I was a mother or a a woman with a permanent significant disability who chose to have a baby. And I think that in itself kind of possibly shocked a lot of people.
1: Corrine said that at a time where most women feel like they were leaning on the medical system to help them through these pre-birth jitters, she was instead gearing up for a conflict.
0: I didn't know how professionals would react, but I was ready for the worst reactions, if you know what I mean. I didn't want to assume that they would be really bad, but I wanted to be ready. So I wanted to speak very clearly, be very decisive about what I wanted and what I expected from service provision. I think, to be honest with you, Maggie, in the back of my mind, I'm always in a state of fight or flight, meaning that I think in the back of my mind, in my subconscious, it's okay, how do I look after myself if something goes wrong? How do I correct something if it starts to go pear-shaped? How do I defend myself if an assumption is made? How do I help myself? The
1: hospital staff, says Corrine, were actually not so bad.
0: The nurses at least had some experience
1: of assisting at the birth of mums with a disability and worked really hard to not make her feel
0: disempowered in the lead up to her birth.
1: Unfortunately, it was actually
0: her inner circle that did that. So a particular friend that I'm thinking of, you know, we were sitting down having a cup of tea and she said, please don't hate me for asking this, but, you know, have you thought about, because you've always said you you weren't sure about being a mother, do you know what you're doing?
1: (laughs) This was so frustrating for Kareem on many, many levels, but mostly because she was experiencing the complete opposite of that. For the first time in her life, Corrine says she felt like everyone else.
0: I've done my birthing classes and it was interesting. Uh, I didn't feel any different from any woman in that class, which was really good. There was no negative speak. There was no pre-made assumptions. It was so nice. Uh, It was lovely. Corrine was
1: experiencing this golden bubble in time where her body was doing exactly what she wanted it to. She fell pregnant easily, her baby boy was growing healthily, and all of that stuff they tell you about when you're pregnant, you know, just letting your body do what it needs to do, it actually started to make sense. Corrine loved being pregnant. And guys, listen to how excited she gets when I ask
0: her about that. Oh, I couldn't wait for you to ask me this question, actually. This was my favourite question. I was like, I know exactly what I'm going to say. I felt so amazing. It felt so beautiful to me because do you know how nice it is to have a pregnancy belly and look like every other woman who is pregnant? I thought, oh my goodness, I think for once my body looks like other women do. You know, that's just my honest words there. To, to see a baby growing inside of me, to, to be able to have the shape that other women have and celebrate that image was so precious to me. And I remember thinking several times, I am so glad that no carer, no specialist and no doctor has to have anything to do with this just yet. Because this is my baby and my body.
1: As abled-bodied people, I don't think we truly understand the lack of privacy disabled people have to live with in their day-to-day, not just physically but emotionally too. This experience, however, was just
0: Kareen's, just hers. It was so lovely to have people say, oh, your belly is so beautiful or, you, you know, you look so, you're glowing, you know, all the normal comments that other women might get. It was nice to get those normal comments. I would 100% say to you, Maggie, that that is the beauty of pregnancy for me, is that I felt I was as normal as it's ever going to get. Corrine was not familiar with being seen as physically able. Nor was she used to being seen as beautiful. I've come a long way, so I hope I don't make anyone sad, but I remember saying to mum when I was a teenager, I would literally look at photos of me as a young little girl and teenager and I would say, mum, why am I so ugly? And I'm sure she was mortified because obviously I think about my two babies now. If my children said that to me, I think I would go find a corner and bore my eyes out. Because to think that Samuel and Tori would think that, it's not okay, you know. But good news, flip side, I can now look at photos, those same photos, and say, Mom, how could I possibly have believed that about myself? Because that little girl is beautiful. You know, with with all I mean, I think it's like any child who grows up with difference. It's hard. I mean, I had glasses that I had to wear and I had to wear a patch over my eye and I had braces on my legs and the kids were terrible. Kids at school were absolutely atrocious. So that didn't help the process either.
1: But pregnant? Corrine felt amazing. Towards the end of the pregnancy though, Corrine definitely felt the same physical strain as everyone else. Samuel was five days overdue and Corrine said she was very,
0: very ready for his arrival. And just like that, he made his move. I had never imagined that contractions could be so intense. I thank God for happy gas in every way. And boy, did I use it to the point where I think I was going to, I was like seeing stars because I knew that I was potentially fighting a normal contraction as well as cerebral palsy contractions. I kind of didn't know the level of endurance I would have for giving birth to Samuel. It's something that I could not quantify. So his the labour for Samuel lasted four hours and 30 minutes and I'm very grateful for that because I could not have lasted anymore. I was getting very tired and I thought, oh, I, again, I was talking to him and I said, Samuel, come on, love, help mummy, help mummy because... Like, we got to get you out. <laughs> like, What I will say, Maggie, is that our minds are powerful and mum has always taught me to visualise what I want to do. Samuel was born
1: at 5.25am, weighing seven pounds, three ounces. Mum and dad were
0: over the moon. Once Samuel was born, I knew he was meant to be in my life. I know now that my children are my best achievement by far. And you can't know that because not everyone feels like that when babies are born either. And not everyone knows they're going to feel like that, but I can say that that's the case for me.
1: As far as pregnancies and births go, Corrine's was pretty much picture perfect. Healthy mum, healthy baby, intervention-free birth, and it was a seismic change in the way Corrine felt about her body. She had been fighting her body since birth, with varying levels of intensity, but never had she done something so easily and with so much enjoyment. Corrine would go on to have another baby, Tori, a little girl. When Corrine found out she was pregnant with a girl, she was excited, but also maybe a little sad that her daughter was going to have this childhood that she didn't.
0: Because I knew it was going to be a girl, I was so excited. (laughs) Because when I look at Tori... And I see what she can do, you know, as an able-bodied, mobile little girl. Oh, I think I say to her often, Tori, that's what mummy would be like if she was a running, walking person. And I think I have just as much sass too, but people just assume that I don't. But trust me, it's inside.
1: Corinne says that one of her greatest challenges is people assuming that
0: she's also intellectually disabled. I get a lot of assumptions about my intelligence and when I say that people don't verbally say you know do you understand me but their actions will display that they think I don't understand or they will speak loudly as if I cannot understand or slowly. What I think upsets me and amuses me the most is when people find out that I am a qualified social worker with more than 17 years of experience, and they go, oh really? Raising kids as a disabled woman in Australia is a whole other story, and one
1: day I'll hope to cover that. Corrine says that this halcyon bubble of pregnancy burst almost immediately as the realities of living with a newborn came crashing down. This is the moment that all parents have post-birth, but was felt really intensely by Corrine
0: all of a sudden the reality hit me. I am in charge of someone else's life and can I do this and and how do I do this and all of a sudden the reality of the physical things that I could not do hit as well and I, I was almost instantly terrified. It's hard to explain because I don't think I've ever said this to anyone but it's like it hit me. There's things that you can't do for yourself, Corrine. Now, how are you going to do this for a child? And it terrified me.
1: Luckily, by the time Corrine had Tori, the NDIS had been put in place here in Australia and Corrine was able to access at-home care. They helped her bathe her babies, put them down for naps, uh, look after Samuel, prepare food, and slowly but surely, Corrine settled into life as a mum of two. I'm reminded, talking to Corrine, of really how important it is to remember life's ability to surprise us. As a disabled woman, surprises usually equal challenges for Corrine. But pregnancy, this totally uncontrollable, ancient, organic experience that she had assumed would be really hard for her, actually ended up being really easy. And that changed her. It changed the way she saw herself, her body's abilities, and maybe even worked to undo 30-odd years of conditioning that she would always be destined to struggle harder than others. It was a humble reminder that parenthood, whilst bloody hard and often unbearable, also shows us just how strong we truly are. Story two, the long way home. Pregnancy and parenthood can really shake up the way you see yourself. Your job, your family, your passions, your whole identity really just gets shaken up like a Christmas snow dome and the best you can do is just sort of sit back and watch all the bits float back to earth around you. Rearranged. Different. Brooke Tolley is an Aboriginal woman who, after having her kids, started to feel this really intense need to start working with birthing women, specifically Aboriginal women who were navigating a foreign and unwelcoming medical system. Through her work, she also started to learn more about her family lineage and traditional customs. Parenthood didn't just shift Brooke's identity, it almost instilled within her a brand new one, one that runs far deeper than anything she's experienced before. So, without further ado, meet Brooke.
2: Uh, hello, my name is Brooke. I am a proud Borroborongu and Wamali woman of both of the Darug Nation. I am 33 years old, and I am currently a registered midwife waiting to start my new graduate year. I am also currently working as an Aboriginal support worker um, at Marana Aboriginal Association in Richmond.
1: Brooke is born and raised on Darug country in northwest New South Wales in a small town called Richmond.
2: We're a nice little country practice town. We're very small, everyone knows everybody. If you don't know them personally, you know their family. So it's a nice country community little town. I love it, it's home.
1: Brooke has been on a bit of a mission lately to trace back her lineage and she recently discovered through family members exactly which clans she's connected to.
2: So I've always known that I'm Aboriginal, but I actually didn't know my clans, which is where the Boroburungal comes from, which is the people of the Grey Kangaroo, which is from Richmond, and then the Wamali people, which is the people from Prospect. So I've just recently found out my clans in the last couple of years, and but I've always known that I'm a Darrig woman.
1: Brooke says she's always felt an innate connection to Richmond and not in a twee, oh, it's nice to be home sort of way. Brooke says she would literally feel anxious if she had to go too far away
2: you know, I've said to you before, like Richmond's home. When I leave Richmond, I feel very uncomfortable. When I'm far from Richmond, I feel like everybody knows I'm not from there. But when I'm at home, I'm at home. I walk around Richmond proud. I walk around confident. I know that I'm home. I don't feel like people are looking at me differently. So knowing that my clan is Boroburungal from Richmond has just opened up a whole door of explaining things within me and making sense as to why I did certain things and why Richmond's home and why I'm comfortable here. And it's because, yeah, it's, that's where my people are from. That's where Pop's from. I pressed Brooke
1: for more information about this feeling. Was it because it was familiar or safe or, you know, it's where her family lived? No, she says, it's just a sense of belonging. Brooke didn't really give these feelings a second thought. She knew that she was an Aboriginal woman, but she didn't have any further context as to place or people. Anyway, during her first pregnancy, Brooke said it just felt super important to her to birth as close to Richmond as possible. She wasn't sure why, she just needed to do it.
2: So I could have had the opportunity to go to Penrith, but I chose Windsor because it was close, again, because of family. And it wasn't until I've started to really connect with my culture that I've understood why I've chosen Windsor, because it is home. It is where my people were.
1: Brooke reckons she started to feel a deep connection to Yallamundi a traditional birth site in the Blue Mountains about 10 minutes from Richmond.
2: Down on that river, if you look across the river, Maria Locke, who was our great-great-grandmother, she was actually born over the other side of the river. So Yarramundi was her dad, um, and then Yellow Mundy is that area that's been called, I'm pretty sure, after him... So Maria Locke was born down the river across from Shores Creek. It's just a sense of belonging. Again, it's that feeling of being at home. And it's knowing, because there is some historical prints and markings around the area, knowing that my ancestors have been there. Like, we settled there. We've sat there.
1: Even after her births as a mum to three boys, Brooke says that there was a strong connection still.
2: There's this beautiful rock. Oh, it's amazing. Like, I just love the story. And it's a kangaroo. And it's got a baby, Joey, and they're both pointing up the mountains. And women would bring their boys there at an age of maturity, so puberty, and this is where women would say goodbye to their boys. And the boys would go, then go off with men and pick up other men on this journey and it would be their transition into men. The women would sit here for days on end weeping and crying because they know that they would never see their son again because when they come back, they come back as men and they don't acknowledge their mother as their mother. They've come back as men and they're ready to now work in the mob as men, not as the little boy that they once said goodbye to. And I've got three boys and I'm like, oh, my gosh, like this is where I would have to say goodbye to you. The connection to
1: country lasted well beyond her births and into her new life as a mum to three. It was around this time she felt two pulls, firstly to find out as much as she could about her culture and why she was feeling such a strong connection to the land But secondly, she wanted more babies. (laughs) Or maybe she just wanted to be around more babies.
2: After my second baby, I said I wanted a third and my husband said no more. No more kids, we're not having any more kids. And I was like, okay, well, if you're not going to give me a baby, I will just go birth other people's. And never thought I'd make it to university. Never thought university was in my reach. Never.
1: Brooke did make it into uni and midwifery scratched that itch big time. She loved it. So many babies. But at the same time as Brooke was falling in love with midwifery, something else was blossoming inside of her. She was learning about her Aboriginal culture and how that played into the birth space from totally unexpected sources.
2: It's really funny. It was actually a Scottish lady. (laughs) So we actually did this health unit. Oh, so we did this health unit um, at uni. It's Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Health. And I walked into this class and I've heard her accent and I said to my friend, there was only two Indigenous girls in our cohort, and I said to her, I'm like, "Um, do we actually have a coloniser teaching us Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health? And she's like, yeah, we do. And I'm like, oh, oh, let's see what she's got to say. Biggest ally I think I've ever met. She was all for us. Yep, she comes to our Cats and M Conference, which is the Congress of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives. She's there. She's got our backs and like she moved from Scotland to a school in South Australia with her children and she said to the parents, like, why you learning First Nations language? And she got shunned. None of the parents wanted to talk to her anymore because she asked this question.
1: Around the same time, Brooke did a placement in an Aboriginal women's health centre and was confronted really by how little she knew about her clan's history.
2: I, I remember saying to one of the midwives down there, I was like, I don't know much about culture. And she's like, that's not your fault. Like, I actually, she actually had to put me in my place and be like, that's not your fault. That's what the white man has done to us. She's like, do not take blame for them not knowing your culture. So it's taken me a lot to realise that it's not my fault I don't know culture and all I can do is continue to immerse myself in it and around it and be taught by all these people. Like, I've been taught by several different mobs. Brooke says she's also started learning cultural traditions from her cousins. And now my cousin's just come in it's like icing over the cake. She's just like, yes, that is right, but this is how we do it. We need to start with this generation. It's been
1: bittersweet, simultaneously foreign and familiar, relearning customs that had been snatched away from her in generations past.
2: Because Pop didn't really talk about it, I think even when his uncle came out and told him, he still kind of shunned it off because he was brought up white. He was raised white. He was put into Bombardier's boys' home. He was assimilated as such. So while he wasn't stolen as such, he was still raised as a white man. So he never taught my mum, so then my mum never taught us. So I've always, again, I've always grown up Darrig, but it's through my journey of midwifery and now connecting with my cousin and connecting with local lot that I'm like I can do this. And my nieces are getting very connected, and my nephews are getting very connected.
1: Today, Brooke is on the cusp of taking the next step in her career, supporting Australia's First Nations women through their birthing journey. And one reoccurring theme is the idea of birthing on country. Here's how Brooke describes what that actually means.
2: So traditionally, birthing on country was women birthing where their mobs were from. Me being from Richmond, birthing on country would be, for me, back then, birthing down on the lowlands, which is farms, or birthing out at Yellow Monday, which um, is where, you know, our people settled. But they would have specific spots for birthing, so they'd be birthing trees. Traditionally, birthing on country with people.
1: This also extends to who people birth with and how.
2: So women always birth with women. It was women's business. Men weren't involved. Men went and did what they had to do but women birthed with women. They birthed with elders. Then after when baby was born, there was traditions around what would happen with bub after that and the placenta and women. And then now, you know, as we've been colonised and, you know, clinical settings have taken over, some women, I know a woman that still birthed on country down south. She went and did it down south with a private midwife. But birthing on country now means birthing where women want to birth,
1: Removing women from country when it's time to birth, says Brooke, causes anxiety, depression and a variety of other issues that disconnect the birthing mum from safety.
2: Aboriginal women I know have been taken from out at Dubbo because they're a high-risk pregnancy and then been brought into where it's, again, suburbia city to be birthed. They're not birthing on country. They've been taken off their country. Again, they might be Biripai women from Taree but live in Wiradjuri. That's home to them. So they want to birth on Dubbo, like they want to birth on country, what's home to them. But yet we're bringing them away to a clinical setting to then not birth on country, which is when you're going to get anxiety and depression and all these things that are going to contribute to a high risk pregnancy more so than what if that would happen if they just birthed at home. And I don't mean home as in their four walls and their roof of their house, home as in where their comfort, where, where home is, like Richmond's home to me, I birthed at Windsor. That's where they want to birth. It's where they choose to birth, not where they're told to birth.
1: Family, says Brooke, is massively central to Aboriginal birthing customs. Being sent away from family therefore disconnects the mum from country
2: and from ritual. Because birth's a celebration, so, you know, everyone's got their roles to play when a baby is born. All women still want their mums. They still want their family around. They still want family close to come and visit. Coming from Dubbo to birth at Penrith, how can your family come visit? They they don't ha- they're losing that connection to family like, and if their their husband believes in the cultural beliefs of it, it's women's business, then she's doing it on her own, which then is going to contribute to, you know, the typical stuff that we get reported on: low birth weight, not feeding this that, like all this stuff that contributes to the anxieties and depression after birth.
1: There was this really interesting moment in our initial pre-interview when Brooke was kind of listing off all the ways that Australia's First Nations birthing culture comes up in this clash with Western clinical birthing culture. Like, Brooke was talking about how birth is women's business and how men are traditionally not involved. In a clinical setting, however, the dad not being involved would ring all kinds of alarm bells. She said that nurses would be concerned there was potentially a domestic violence situation or that the dad didn't want to be around. Birth, by nature, is amazingly political, always has been. And here in Australia, I'm starting to understand the gaping hole that exists between Aboriginal birthing people and our current Western birthing system. And that's a gap that Brooke is currently trying to fill.
2: Realistically, in the clinical setting, I don't think they care how they provide their care to Aboriginal women or non-Aboriginal women. Like at the end of the day, they're all just clinically there to do a job. They don't take in cultural aspects at all for any any nationality. Realistically, like
1: this kind of cultural consideration, if you can call it that, says Brooke, are not only tokenistic; they're downright embarrassing.
2: Yeah, like I was actually speaking to a lady the other day and she found out I was a midwife and she was telling me her birth story and stuff like that, you know, we're just unpacking it. And when she gave birth, I don't know what hospital she gave birth at, but she was saying, they were like, oh, we have got this Aboriginal room and for Aboriginal women to birth and blah, blah. So she's like, I was expecting to go in and have like a, a rope, like a birth tree, like something to leverage herself on and to birth, something like that. And she's like, no, I walked into a room that still had a bed and was very clinical. And she goes, so why is this room Aboriginal? She's like, oh, up there. And it was just a belly cast that was painted. And that's why they call it the Aboriginal Birth Space.
1: It's kind of ironic, says Brooke, to remove Aboriginal women from their birthing customs, since in her experience these are the women with the lowest levels of fear about birth.
2: How is a, an Aboriginal woman going to trust the healthcare system if you can't trust her first and her own body? Like when I when I went into this birth with this Aboriginal woman, like she was like, in the next two pushes, this baby will be out, and we're like, okay, like we're we were seeing the head, but we're like, okay, like whatever. And I think it was one and a half pushes and that baby was here. And I was like, oh, my God, this woman just trusted her body. She knew what was happening. And I'm like, that's custom. I ask Brooke what needs to change. She points to her time
1: at an Aboriginal women's clinic that was owned and operated exclusively by Aboriginal women.
2: I 100% think that to be a culturally safe space for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander women, not just with birth, but with their healthcare overall, like for them, their babies, their partners, It needs needs to be out of a healthcare system. At the end of the day, our healthcare system is still governed by a white person. There's no Aboriginal people up there that are directing the healthcare system. And if they are in the healthcare system, they're conformed to what the white man wants anyway.
1: Brooke is a lady on a mission. She's working towards a better future for birthing women here in Australia, and for her, that begins at home. She's looking to bring genuine connection between her land... Australia's First Nations people and birth. Hearing her talk, I feel like I am in the presence of a real community leader. She rarely talks about herself and her dreams. It's always about her people and her community.
2: After a woman gives birth, um, they would traditionally smoke her. So after she's given birth, they would cleanse like the, the vaginal area and like smoke that and that would be just a sense of cleansing like we believe smoke is cleansing so we have smoking ceremonies and we walk through smoke to cleanse us and it only makes sense that that would happen and a lot of people these days think that smoking ceremony should only be done by men but obviously we did it because a man couldn't smoke a woman so that's a women's business so it's something that I really want to um find some of the elders around my area and I want to learn it and I want to learn. So when we do these smoking ceremonies for women, that's something that I'd really like to bring back in the Hawkesbury is something like that.
1: Specifically, Brooke sees this as a moment to ease women into the birth space to bring calmness and connection through beautiful ancient ritual.
2: Another tradition that I've seen down south too is they take women out at 36 weeks and give her a smoking ceremony, something private, by herself, out on country. And I said to the midwife down there, I was like, excuse my ignorance, but why do you do that? What's the significance? And she said, because at 36 weeks is when we class that as full term and safe. And they just cleanse her of all the negativity that could have been spoken over her and how she's feeling and just getting her prepared for birth. And that's something that I really want to bring back into um, the local community too. And where I'm working, we really want to look at doing that and somehow connecting with the local hospital and offering that to Aboriginal women at 36 weeks, taking them out on country and just, just calming them.
1: At the end of our interview, I asked Brooke if she had any other midwives in her family. It's my experience from making this podcast and talking to lots and lots of midwives and nurses and doulas that people with the same dogged passion as Brooke usually come from a long line of birth keepers. It's kind of like this genetic magic that gets passed down. Now, I know that this sounds pretty wacky doodle, but it's true. Okay, trust me. Anyway, a couple of days ago, I get a message from Brooke. So, fun fact, she wrote, Maria Locke, my grandmother, was a healer, nurse, and birth worker. I've thought a lot about that in the days since. Brooke has managed to tap into this identity she didn't even know she had. Over the course of parenthood, she's found new family, new stories, new places, new missions that were actually inside of her this whole time. Parenthood in 2022 can feel like this modern battle of screen time and school lunches and Saturday morning sport, but when you strip all of that away, it's ancient. It's this ancient thing we've been doing since the start of time. And maybe if we can just get out of our own way, there's something for all of us to discover. Identity is a nebulous sort of concept that I personally really didn't think about that much until I became a parent. Maybe this is because it was the first time that my identity had been challenged or changed, at least when I can remember. Like, we forget the turmoil of puberty pretty quickly, and then you're just sort of floating around for a decade or so, figuring out what your favorite vodka cruiser is and how to pay your taxes. But then, Bang! Parenthood is like this brick just falling from the sky. You really don't see this identity change coming. You just wake up one day and realize that everything that makes you, you, isn't as stable and constant as you thought it was. But the new identity that comes wiggling out of the dusty old ground is just bloody awesome. It's diamond strong forged under the enormous weight of parenthood, a shiny new jewel that not even the rudest sales assistant can shake. So a massive thank you to Corrine and Brooke, my new besties. What fabulous leaders you both are. I'm so excited to see what you guys do next. Thank you also to both of you for your patience and generosity of time in teaching me about language um, Corrine for the disabled community and book when speaking to and about First Nation Australians. I really, really appreciate it. I think we all have a lot to learn. So guys, that's it. Remember, this has been one small story of parents, but one huge tale of parent kind. I'm your host, Maggie Kelly, and I'm totally going to hang out with you again soon. Stay well. This has been a super real production. ParentKind is produced by Julian Morgans, and our executive producer is Rachel Tuffrey. Our sound design and original music composition is by Jimmy Saunders, and our theme song is sung by Louisa Rankin. The show has been edited by Jimmy Saunders and Patrick O'Farrell, and our artwork is by Ben Thompson. Thanks for listening to our show.